This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tay Jensen. Villette by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 4 Miss Marchmont. On quitting Breton, which I did a few weeks after Paulina's departure, little thinking then I was never again to visit it, never more to tread its calm old streets, I betook myself home, having been absent six months. It will be conjectured that I was, of course, glad to return to the bosom of my kindred. Well, the amiable conjecture does no harm, and may therefore be safely left uncontradicted. Far from saying nay, indeed, I will permit the reader to picture me, for the next eight years, as a bark slumbering through halcyon weather, in a harbour still as glass, the steersman stretched on the little deck, his face up to heaven, his eyes closed, buried, if you will, in a long prayer. A great many women and girls are supposed to pass their lives something in that fashion. Why not I with the rest? Picture me, then, idle, basking, plump and happy, stretched on a cushioned deck, warmed with constant sunshine, rocked by breezes, indolently soft. However, it cannot be concealed that, in that case, I must somehow have fallen overboard, or that there must have been wreck at last. I too well remember a time, a long time, of cold, of danger, of contention. To this hour, when I have the nightmare, it repeats the rush and saltness of briny waves in my throat, and their icy pressure on my lungs. I even know there was a storm, and that not of one hour nor one day. For many days and nights neither sun nor stars appeared. We cast with our own hands the tackling out of the ship. A heavy tempest lay on us. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. In fine, the ship was lost, the crew perished. As far as I recollect, I complained to no one about these troubles. Indeed, to whom could I complain? Of Mrs. Breton I had long lost sight. Impediments raised by others had, years ago, come in the way of our intercourse, and cut it off. Besides, time had brought changes for her too. The handsome property of which she was left guardian for her son, and which had been chiefly invested in some joint stock undertaking, had melted, it was said, to a fraction of its original amount. Graham, I learned from incidental rumours, had adopted a profession. Both he and his mother were gone from Breton, and were understood to be now in London. Thus there remained no possibility of dependence on others. To myself alone could I look. I know not that I was of a self-reliant or active nature, but self-reliance and exertion were forced upon me by circumstances, as they are upon thousands besides. And when Miss Marchmont, a maiden lady of our neighbourhood, sent for me, I obeyed her behest in the hope that she might assign me some task I could undertake. Miss Marchmont was a woman of fortune and lived in a handsome residence, but she was a rheumatic cripple, impotent foot and hand, and had been so for twenty years. She always sat upstairs. Her drawing-room adjoined her bedroom. I had often heard of Miss Marchmont, and of her peculiarities. She had the character of being very eccentric. 
but till now had never seen her. I found her a furrowed, grey-haired woman, grave with solitude, stern with long affliction, irritable also, and perhaps exacting. It seemed that a maid, or rather companion, who had waited on her for some years, was about to be married, and she, hearing of my bereaved lot, had sent for me, with the idea that I might supply this person's place. She made the proposal to me after tea, as she and I sat alone by her fireside. "'It will not be an easy life,' said she candidly, "'for I require a good deal of attention, and you will be much confined. Yet, perhaps, contrasted with the existence you have lately led, it may appear tolerable.' I reflected. "'Of course, it ought to appear tolerable,' I argued inwardly. "'but somehow, by some strange fatality, it would not. "'To live here, in this close room, "'the watcher of suffering, sometimes perhaps the butt of temper, "'through all that was to come of my youth, "'while all that was gone had passed, to say the least, not blissfully. "'My heart sunk one moment, then it revived, "'for though I forced myself to realise evils, I think I was too prosaic to idealise, and consequently to exaggerate them. "'My doubt is whether I should have strength for the undertaking,' I observed. "'That is my own scruple,' said she, "'for you look a worn-out creature.' So I did. I saw myself in the glass in my morning dress, a faded, hollow-eyed vision. Yet I thought little of the wan spectacle— the blight, I believed, was chiefly external. I still felt life at life's sources. "'What else have you in view? Anything?' "'Nothing clear as yet, but I may find something.' "'So you imagine. Perhaps you are right. Try your own method, then, and if it does not succeed, test mine. The chance I have offered shall be left open to you for three months.' This was kind. I told her so, and expressed my gratitude. While I was speaking, a paroxysm of pain came on. I ministered to her, made the necessary applications, according to her directions, and, by the time she was relieved, a sort of intimacy was already formed between us. I, for my part, had learned from the manner in which she bore this attack, that she was a firm, patient woman— patient under physical pain, though sometimes perhaps excitable under long mental canker. And she, from the good will with which I succoured her, discovered that she could influence my sympathies, such as they were. She sent for me the next day. For five or six successive days she claimed my company. Closer acquaintance, while it developed both faults and eccentricities, opened at the same time a view of a character I could respect." Stern and even morose as she sometimes was, I could wait on her and sit beside her with that calm which always blesses us when we are sensible that our manners, presence, contact, please and soothe the persons we serve. Even when she scolded me, which she did now and then, very tartly, it was in such a way as did not humiliate and left no sting. It was rather like an irascible mother rating her daughter than a harsh mistress lecturing a dependent. Lecture, indeed, she could not, though she could occasionally storm. Moreover, 
A vein of reason ever ran through her passion. She was logical even when fierce. Ere long, a growing sense of attachment began to present the thought of staying with her as companion in quite a new light. In another week, I had agreed to remain. Two hot, close rooms thus became my world, and a crippled old woman, my mistress, my friend, my all. Her service was my duty, her pain my suffering, her relief my hope, her anger my punishment, her regard my reward. I forgot that there were fields, woods, rivers, seas, an ever-changing sky outside the steam-dimmed lattice of this sick chamber. I was almost content to forget it. All within me became narrowed to my lot. Tame and still by habit, disciplined by destiny, I demanded no walks in the fresh air. My appetite needed no more than the tiny messes served for the invalid. In addition, she gave me the originality of her character to study. The steadiness of her virtues, I will add. The power of her passions to admire. The truth of her feelings to trust. All these things she had. And for these things I clung to her. For these things I would have crawled on with her for twenty years, if for twenty years longer her life of endurance had been protracted. But another decree was written. It seemed I must be stimulated into action. I must be goaded, driven, stung, forced to energy. My little morsel of human affection which I prized as if it were a solid pearl, must melt in my fingers and slip thence like a dissolving hailstone. My small adopted duty must be snatched from my easily contented conscience. I had wanted to compromise with fate, to escape occasional great agonies by submitting to a whole life of privation and small pains. Fate would not so be pacified, nor would Providence sanction this shrinking sloth and cowardly indolence. One February night, I remember it well, there came a voice near Miss Marchmont's house, heard by every inmate, but translated, perhaps, only by one. After a calm winter, storms were ushering in the spring. I had put Miss Marchmont to bed. I sat at the fireside sewing. The wind was wailing at the windows. It had wailed all day, but as night deepened, it took a new tone, an accent keen, piercing, almost articulate to the ear, a plaint piteous and disconsolate to the nerves, trilled in every gust. "'Oh, hush, hush!' I said in my disturbed mind, dropping my work and making a vain effort to stop my ears against that subtle, searching cry." I had heard that very voice ere this, and compulsory observation had forced on me a theory as to what it boded. Three times in the course of my life, events had taught me that these strange accents in the storm, this restless, hopeless cry, denote a coming state of the atmosphere unpropitious to life. Epidemic diseases, I believed, were often heralded by a gasping, sobbing, tormented, long-lamenting east wind. Hence, I inferred, arose the legend of the Banshee. 
I fancied, too, I had noticed, but was not philosopher enough to know whether there was any connection between the circumstances, that we often at the same time hear of disturbed volcanic action in distant parts of the world, of rivers suddenly rushing above their banks, and of strange high tides flowing furiously in on low sea-coasts. Our globe, I had said to myself, seems at such periods torn and disordered, the feeble amongst us wither in her distempered breath, rushing hot from steaming volcanoes. I listened and trembled. Miss Marchmont slept. About midnight the storm in one half-hour fell to a dead calm. The fire, which had been burning dead, glowed up vividly. I felt the air change and become keen. Raising blind and curtain, I looked out and saw in the stars the keen sparkle of a sharp frost. Turning away, the object that met my eyes was Miss Marchmont awake, lifting her head from the pillow and regarding me with unusual earnestness. "'Is it a fine night?' she asked. I replied in the affirmative. "'I thought so,' she said, "'for I feel so strong, so well.' "'Raise me. I feel young to-night,' she continued. "'Young, light-hearted, and happy. "'What if my complaint be about to take a turn, "'and I am yet destined to enjoy health? "'It would be a miracle.' "'And these are not the days of miracles,' I thought to myself, "'and wondered to hear her talk so.' She went on, directing her conversation to the past, and seeming to recall its incidents, scenes, and personages, with singular vividness. "'I love memory to-night,' she said. "'I prize her as my best friend. She is just now giving me a deep delight. She is bringing back to my heart, in warm and beautiful life, realities, not mere empty ideas, but what were once realities.' and that I long have thought decayed, dissolved, mixed in with grave-mould. I possess just now the hours, the thoughts, the hopes of my youth. I renew the love of my life, its only love, almost its only affection, for I am not a particularly good woman. I am not amiable. Yet I have had my feelings strong and concentrated, and these feelings had their object, which in its single self was dear to me, as to the majority of men and women are all the unnumbered points on which they dissipate their regard. While I loved, and while I was loved, what an existence I enjoyed! What a glorious year I can recall! How bright it comes back to me! What a living spring! What a warm, glad summer! What soft moonlight, silvering the autumn evenings! What strength of hope under the ice-bound waters and frost-hoar fields of that year's winter! Through that year my heart lived with Frank's heart. Oh, my noble Frank! My faithful Frank! My good Frank! So much better than myself! his standard in all things so much higher. This I can now see and say. 
If few women have suffered as I did in his loss, few have enjoyed what I did in his love. It was a far better kind of love than common. I had no doubts about it or him. It was such a love as honoured, protected, and elevated no less than it gladdened her to whom it was given. Let me now ask, just at this moment, when my mind is so strangely clear, let me reflect why it was taken from me. For what crime was I condemned, after twelve months of bliss, to undergo thirty years of sorrow? I do not know, she continued after a pause. I cannot, cannot see the reason. Yet at this hour I can say with sincerity what I never tried to say before. Inscrutable God, thy will be done. And at this moment I can believe that death will restore me to Frank. I never believed it till now. He is dead then? I inquired in a low voice. My dear girl, she said, one happy Christmas Eve I dressed and decorated myself, expecting my lover, very soon to be my husband, would come that night to visit me. I sat down to wait. Once more I see that moment. I see the snow-twilight stealing through the window over which the curtain was not dropped, for I designed to watch him ride up the wide walk. I see and feel the soft firelight warming me, playing on my silk dress, and fitfully showing me my own young figure in a glass. I see the moon of a calm winter night float full, clear, and cold over the inky mass of shrubbery, and the silvered turf of my grounds. I wait, with some impatience in my pulse, but no doubt in my breast. The flames had died in the fire, but it was a bright mass yet. The moon was mounting high, but she was still visible from the lattice. The clock neared ten. He rarely tarried later than this, but once or twice he had been delayed so long. Would he for once fail me? No, not even for once, and now he was coming, and coming fast to atone for lost time. Frank, you furious rider, I said inwardly, listening gladly, yet anxiously to his approaching gallop. You shall be rebuked for this. I will tell you it is my neck you are putting in peril, for whatever is yours is in a dearer and tenderer sense, mine. There he was. I saw him, but I think tears were in my eyes. My sight was so confused. I saw the horse. I heard it stamp. I saw at least a mass. I heard a clamour. Was it a horse? Or what heavy, dragging thing was it, crossing strangely dark the lawn? How could I name that thing in the moonlight before me? Or how could I utter the feeling which rose in my soul? I could only run out. A great animal, truly Frank's black horse, stood trembling, panting, snorting before the door. 
A man held it, frank as I thought. "'What is the matter?' I demanded. Thomas, my own servant, answered by saying sharply, "'Go into the house, madam,' and then calling to another servant, who came hurrying from the kitchen as if summoned by some instinct. "'Ruth, take the missus into the house directly.' But I was kneeling down in the snow, beside something that lay there, something that I had seen dragged along the ground, something that sighed, that groaned on my breast as I lifted and drew it to me. He was not dead, he was not quite unconscious. I had him carried in. I refused to be ordered about and thrust from him. I was quite collected enough not only to be my own mistress, but the mistress of others. They had begun by trying to treat me like a child, as they always do with people struck by God's hand. But I gave place to none except the surgeon, and when he had done what he could, I took my dying Frank to myself. He had strength to fold me in his arms. He had power to speak my name. He heard me as I prayed over him very softly. He felt me as I tenderly and fondly comforted him. Maria, he said, I am dying in paradise. He spent his last breath in faithful words for me. When the dawn of Christmas morning broke, my Frank was with God. And that, she went on, happened thirty years ago. I have suffered since. I doubt if I have made the best use of all my calamities. Soft, amiable natures they would have refined to saintliness. Of strong, evil spirits they would have made demons. As for me, I have only been a woe-struck and selfish woman. You have done much good, I said, for she was noted for her liberal alms-giving. I have not withheld money, you mean, where it could assuage affliction. What of that? It cost me no effort or pang to give. But I think from this day I am about to enter a better frame of mind, to prepare myself for a union with Frank. You see, I still think of Frank more than of God. And unless it be counted that in thus loving the creature so much, so long, and so exclusively, I have not at least blasphemed the Creator, small is my chance of salvation. What do you think, Lucy, of these things? Be my chaplain, and tell me. This question I could not answer. I had no words. It seemed as if she thought I had answered it. "'Very right, my child. "'We should acknowledge God merciful, "'but not always for us comprehensible. "'We should accept our own lot, whatever it be, "'and try to render happy that of others, should we not? "'Well, to-morrow I will begin by trying to make you happy. "'I will endeavour to do something for you, Lucy, "'something that will benefit you when I am dead.' My head aches now with talking too much. Still, I am happy. Go to bed. The clock strikes two. How late you sit up, 
or rather how late I, in my selfishness, keep you up. But go now, have no more anxiety for me. I feel I shall rest well. She composed herself as if to slumber. I too retired to my crib in a closet within her room. The night passed in quietness. Quietly, her doom must at last have come. Peacefully and painlessly. In the morning, she was found without life, nearly cold, but all calm and undisturbed. Her previous excitement of spirits and change of mood had been the prelude of a fit. One stroke sufficed to sever the thread of an existence so long fretted by affliction. End of chapter 4